Blog Talk Radio. joining us again today. Today we're going to have another very interesting show. We are engaging the playwright and actor and director uh, comprised of two people, actually a husband and wife, George Bartenyev and Karen Malpied, on a theater piece that they both developed called Extreme Weather that has been showing for the last couple of weeks at the Theater for the New City on 1st Avenue between 9th and 10th Streets in the middle of Manhattan, New York City, downtown. And it has been really, how do I say, taking its audience by storm because of its uh, profound message and um, rousing the feeling and the sentiments of people regarding what we're facing in our world today the subjects that we deal with routinely here on A Better World Radio, on uh, Film Hour with Mitchell Rabin every week on uh, Progressive Radio Network and on our TV show, always looking to understand and deepen our knowledge of and our uh, response to, our intelligent response to the world as we have it today because we're, uh, we're boiling over with many different uh, types of issues, and this play in particular zeroes in on the issue of global warming and climate change. So uh, joining me in a little bit after a little introduction here will be Karen Malpied, who is the uh, playwright and director of the play, and her husband, George Bartenyev, who is uh, one of the lead actors in the play. I invited them on to A Better World because the play so um, exemplifies the kind of dialogue that has been going on really across the world, but let's just talk about our country, of those who are saying, uh, sounding the alarm, we've got something we've got to seriously pay attention to, if not today, yesterday. And there are those who say, oh my God, another opportunity for um, greater... um, greater profit through uh, any number of different kinds of uh, business activities to capitalize on the current situation. Some see it as a very real call to action on the side of preserving our environment, and others see it, of course, as a some kind of uh, pseudoscientific hoax. And uh, 
this theater piece really, really captures the spirit of that conflict in understanding and conflict in motives and conflict in belief systems and conflict in the way we relate to our world and to our earth, as well as to all sorts of things such as capitalism, materialism, and the like. So uh, a little bit of introduction of our two guests today. Uh, George Bartenev, who uh, plays the uncle in, uh, in this play called Extreme Weather, weather spelled W-H instead of W-E, has had one of the more illustrious careers in American theater. At age 14, he made his Broadway debut in The Whole World Over, directed by Harold uh, Klorman with Uta Hagen and Herbert Berghoff. At age 16, he was again on Broadway in Lillian Hellman's Montserrat, directed by the author, with Julie Harris and Emily Williams. He then left the United States to study at RADA and the uh, guide uh, Guildhall, I'm so sorry. Uh, later, he returned to New York, where he starred in, uh, as Peter in Edward Albee's Zoo Story and Crap in Samuel Beckett's Crap's Last Tape at the Cherry Lane Theater, directed by Alan Schneider. His theatrical credits go on and on, from the Living Theater to Bread and Puppet Theater to Joseph Papp's Public Theater to Mabu Mines, essentially uh, very involved in the development and cultivation of experimental theater here in the United States, along which uh, lines he was one of the co-founders of Theater for the New City, where he acted in and produced over 400 new plays for the American theater, including premieres of major works of Sam Shepard and uh, Maria Irene Fornes. In 1987, he starred in Us by Karen Malpede, directed by Judith Molina, and won an Obie for Sustained Excellence as an actor. So his credentials go long and deep and wide. Karen Malpede, who is the playwright and director of this really extraordinary theater piece as, uh, that will be the focus of today's show, is, and now his, uh, his wife, is author of 17 plays. She has directed premieres of nine of them. Her most recent, a post-9-11 trilogy, are Another Life, played, uh, run both in New York and London, a surreal retelling of the U.S. torture program, Prophecy, in New York, London, and Berlin about the cost of war to veterans and those who love them, and Iraq Speaking of War, a New York docudrama. So, uh, the, again, the credentials go on, but what I'd like to do is refer you to our newsletter where all of this is written up. There are rather complete bios and more on the play itself by going to a abetterworld.tv where we have a weekly free newsletter, and I invite you all to sign up for it. At this point, I'd like very much to dive in with our guests into discussing this play, and, uh, and then you can, by so hearing... Uh, up to go and see it in its final week. Those of you in the New York tri-state area, it's something, it's a play you really don't want to miss if you're able to uh, 
hop on and see it. Or if you are a producer and would like to pick up the ball and produce it in your own local theater or, I think, Broadway or off-Broadway. So, George, Karen, welcome to A Better World. Well, no. Thank you. Thank Thank you for having us. It's a pleasure. Great. Really, my pleasure to have you both. I, I want to just first, if you don't mind, uh, just say that I thought the work that you both did in this play and the other actors is really stellar. Uh, earth, if I can say earthly and stellar at the same time. <laughs> I feel that you have uh, really captured um, so much of the essence of the dialogues that are going on in uh, living rooms and have been for and uh, at dinner tables for some years now, not to mention between the uh, politicians, the Democrats and the Republicans, and there are folks on both sides of that aisle that um, see it just the opposite of the rest of their party members. And in short, we have a real debacle on our hands because on one hand, those of us who are watching the um, uh, parts per million of CO2 in our atmosphere rise, the others are shrugging their shoulders and saying, What's the big deal? You're worried a lot about nothing. Uh, You know, much ado about nothing. And so it's truly alarming for many of us, maybe even on both sides of that that question. So, Karen, maybe you could just start off with just telling us a little bit about what it is that drove you to to produce and uh, write this play. I have been uh, an ecologist or an eco-feminist for many, many, many years, and uh, like most of us, a lover of nature. And I knew that I had to write a play about what was happening now. Uh, And I started to read, and I was very, very moved by the story of the climate scientists. Jim Hansen, Michael Mann, Jennifer Francis in particular. Uh, But these are people who thought they would spend their entire lives working in laboratories and writing peer-reviewed papers, and they suddenly began to get death threats because of the research they were doing. They were censored, have been censored, their emails have been hacked. James Hansen had to resign his post. He was half driven out of NASA and half left of his own free will so that he could sue the United States government on behalf of the younger generations, the future generations. So these are our Galileos. Uh, Mm -hmm. These are the people who understand how the world works and the climate systems work and see that we're headed for sea level rise of maybe six feet by uh, century's end if we do nothing, Uh, temperature rise of four to six degrees Celsius by by century's end if we do nothing, if we continue to burn fossil fuel. And they understand the social and and uh, human and and eco uh, impacts of such uh, rampant and quick climate change, um, which will you know uh, have many deleterious effects. And they're trying to warn the rest of us, and they're being attacked. So I was very moved by that story, and that's yes. what led me to write the play. Yes. Well, I'm I'm grateful, and I think all of your audience members. Uh, are as well, because uh, I would like to say I wish the President of the United States and other um, top players could see the play and really get the Well, we'd love to take it to Washington. We'd love to do it in Washington 
for Congress right. actually so, would be great. Um, but yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. You know, it's it's ironic. The Pentagon and the U.S. military understand and are are preparing for the issues of climate change more than any other branch of government. They they don't need to be further convinced through politics of its uh, truth. They are doing any number of different, um, taking any number of different measures to prepare for sea level rise, for ecosystemic destruction, for temperature rise. Isn't that interesting? They, they're not waiting around for foolish politicians well, to they know, tell them they know. about the climate. <laughs> They know, they know exactly. uh, you know, but they're at the same time they're waging war, which is very bad for the climate. So uh, they're doing Absolutely. two things at That's once. They're, they're continuing yeah. to they're continuing to spew carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and and uh, and fight for oil. Um, and at the same time, they're fully aware that the Syrian civil war started because of climate change exactly. and that other wars and mass migrations and food insecurities and fights over water are going to continue to make the globe less stable. So they're preparing That's for, uh, sure. for that. No, you're um, right. There's uh, the paradox. On the one hand, they know full well what we're facing. Uh, as much as anybody does. Uh, it's a little precipitous and, as a result, unpredictable. But they are also the uh, greatest polluters on the planet with the number of army bases they have, their, their vast, extreme consumption of oil, and all of the things that are derivatives of oil. And, uh, and war, as you said, is like one of the greatest polluters we could imagine. So I, I'm just uh, grateful that you've done this. And George, uh, you've done so many plays. I know a lot of it has been political theater, what with La Mama, et cetera, that you've been in my boo minds and all. And, you know, it's funny. I mean, of all people to interview you both on radio, uh, I'm perhaps one of the few people in uh, the media who actually has a background in experimental theater going back to the mid-'70s at Bard College. I just got a kick out of that idea, you know? Yeah, but, well, I, that's where I, I drifted into... Uh, I mean, I, I, I started on with political theater on Broadway as a teenager, and uh, yes. not knowing that it was political theater uh, because it was about the housing shortage in Moscow right after the war, uh, and then uh, the Lillian Hellman play was a metaphor for the McCarthy hearings. Um, mm. So interesting. Uh, but then, but then, you know, uh, after I came back from England, I got involved just in plain, good old, exciting theater, and and that was Craps last tape and zoo story. Um, yes. But then, yes. uh, then I discovered uh, Judson Memorial Church, and I was swept away by the whole experimental theater movement. Uh, so. But one of the things that happened at the same time was a lot of street theater. There was an enormous amount of street theater in New York. Uh, there were yes. like about 20 companies. And um, I suddenly uh, began to be aware. Well, what years uh, were these, through, George? Uh, I'm, I'm talking about uh, the early, the end of the uh, 50s and the beginning of the 60s. Uh, okay. There was a poet, uh, Robert Nichols, who wrote 
uh, a, a bunch of uh, street plays, and he did them, and he directed them, and they were big productions uh, on an open bed hmm. truck. And he was one of the few people to join poetry with politics. And, of course, that's what the 60s were all about, was the, 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 uh, the, the collaboration between artists and poets and painters who were the first to start the happenings in New York. And so um, all of those things really began to interest me because I grew up on, on stories of Diaghilev, um, mm-hmm. uh, and mm-hmm. I was very excited by the whole idea. And Judson was that, you know, it, it, it uh, put all the art forms together uh, in a way that hadn't been done in the States before. And so suddenly uh, there were all kinds of new rules. And I, I kept looking, even when I started theater for the new city, I was still looking for a theater that uh, was an amalgam uh, of all these things, language, visual art, um, you know, and, and mm-hmm. the present uh, in which we live, you know. So um, Kind of like combining show- media. Yes, 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 combining disciplines, uh, uh, you know, theater performance disciplines. Um, yes. And, uh, you know, the Brig was, uh, with the Living Theater, was uh, uh, such a production that combined uh, these kinds of elements. And then, and then finally, when uh, Karen brought her first play with Judith, Judith came and Karen of came the Living with theater. this play. Yeah. Uh, yes, uh, when Judith uh, came back from Europe after many years of exile, they, uh, she said, I, I must do an American play uh, with American actors, and she, she, she picked uh, a Karen's play. And um, I must say, when I read it, I, I got the, the play uh, Judith sent to me in an envelope, and I just, my hair stood on end and said, my God, this is the playwright I've been looking for. Uh-huh. Uh huh. So, so you so married really, her. <laughs> what's that? So oh, you well, married that, her. <laughs> oh well, that was later. Yeah, that was okay. later. Uh, um, I was just uh, telling a romantic story. That's all. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, very often, uh, you know, there's a there's an inseparable, uh, and 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 there's a line that is too thin to draw between between uh, who you are more married to. Uh, you yes. know the art, or 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 your partner. Um, That's right. But That's we, right. but certainly this is a, a, a great relationship because uh, uh, I think we believe in each other's uh, work very much. Um, yes. And it and yes. it's and it's very complimentary uh, because we both have a totally different. We come from different disciplines and and a different background. Uh, although yes. Ka- you know, Karen had her own theater where that was free uh, m- many years ago. She started a theater in uh, Park Slope, and um, uh, it was free to the community. And uh, oh, you know, that was wow. how how she did her first plays. Uh, so um, we come from different but similar uh, related backgrounds. You know. 
Yes, I understand. It's very interesting. I mean, and it's let me just say it's a real pleasure and honor to be speaking with you both because uh, of not only because of the power of this particular play, which we will, of course, get right back to shortly, but to just speak with two people who are really veteran, uh, veterans of, <laughs> of experimental theater and theater in the yes. United States in general and in New York in particular for, you know, decades. And, um, you know, you've been both been yeah. pioneers in experimental theater and in, uh, you know, clearly also street theater and in popularizing these ways instead of just theater purely as entertainment value, uh, really digging down much deeper to looking at our social, political, economic, etc. types of uh, conflicts and issues in our society and using theater as a very serious platform. Not to say that people like Tennessee Williams did not. That's not true. I'm not saying that. But in a more modern idiom, you could say, and more experimental, you two have been among the leaders in this domain. And uh, it's really a pleasure to hear about uh, the transitions that you have either witnessed or been behind bringing forward. Yes. Well, well, we were very lucky, you know, to come along at a time when everyone in every art form had something uh, very important to say to the rest of their community and, and the world. And, and there was a very exciting lessons we learned uh, all the time from various artists. Uh, and but it was all about how do you use your art to really uh, say something meaningful. Well, it's interesting. Yes, of course. Uh, you reference George the fifties uh, into the sixties. It's funny there are you know different points of view on this, but uh, the fifties was considered to be among the happiest times in United States American society, sort of the aftermath of World War II. There was so much bloodshed, death, etc. It also had a very unifying effect on uh, the United States because war is perhaps one of the only good things uh, about it, that it has a, a kind of a unifying feeling among people. But it was also the time of a great upsurge of materialism um, and uh, the the whole suburban uh, idea started to really take place and take hold, suburbia, etc. But you're suggesting that there was this whole, I mean, we know that there was a whole kind of both beatnik and bohemian trend, largely in the village at the time in New York. Oh, yes. Um, and it was probably growing in other cities, too. Could you comment a little bit about how that then uh, was part of the um, ethos at the time and how that developed into what we have as the glorious, I think, 60s. Well, when I started, uh, uh, you know, as an, as an actor, I lived on uh, 10th Street between B and C. And mm. uh, you, if you, the, immediately when you walked into the next block between A and 1st, there were a bunch of storefronts uh, that were uh, the homes and studios of artists, painters. And uh, at night, uh, they would turn, uh, several of them turned their studios into theaters, 
where the first where the first happenings were collaborations between painters and poets and yeah. uh they really are uh, for me uh being in new york at that moment uh was was a real revelation of how you could really uh make two art forms uh intermingle and explode in a, in a new way yeah. that that uh was so uh illuminating literally uh yeah. you know and and yeah. it took uh it took no prisoners i mean there were no there were no boundaries uh and yes. uh the possibilities were endless you could see that this was only the beginning of uh a new uh you know horizon in in theater yes. and art and yes. so but they were the ones who were responsible the the poets and the the painters and uh and then that moved of course very quickly and easily the poets became playwrights and um and and then uh, you know all these performance spaces began And then to the painters open. became actors? <laughs> yes. Probably and not. and yeah. and uh you know uh, I I remember at Judson uh the actors were asked to be in dance concerts because they weren't dance in the traditional way. You didn't have to have training uh, to right. do what they were asking you to do. And then uh, dancers would be in the plays that were being done at Judson. So th there was a true, you know, cross-pollination there, you know. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Well, I, it's very interesting to hear about those times, and now we are living in a in a time which has morphed again several times, really. Uh, you know, from the hip hop world to the Generation X and Y and Z, and yeah. now the millennials. I mean, we're just uh, our hands are full and hopping with all of the different kinds of trends that are before yeah. us, but. Underneath it all are the topics that you are really elucidating in this theater piece, and uh, I'd well, like to just come back to that a bit here. George, you have a comment? Yes. Uh, well, I, I just want to say the great thing about uh, Karen's work, and one of the things that make it unique is that she's not just a political writer. Uh, she is a a writer creating a new uh, form for the theater because uh, the last play, the Another Life that you mentioned, um, was a, uh, a a wild seesaw ride between uh, surreal surrealism and and reality, surrealism and reality, surrealism and reality, and that was the only way you could tell that uh, story and. Um, Plus the fact that she, in every play that she does, she creates a new language uh, that mm -hmm. that is suitable for that play, you know. So, yes. so it's really yes. uh, uh, much more. But now, Karen should speak about <laughs> about yes, the idea. Yes, absolutely. I would like that. I want to say, in uh, leading up to this, Karen, that uh, the the text of the play, uh, not only its factual parts that are the work of Jim Hansen and the other leading climatologists, but you created a a series of conflicts um, through the relationships 
interplay that are just really it's it's almost like a mystery play at the same time as uh having a lot of political power to it did you what is the relationship i know it's kind of loosely fictionally based on the work of these climatologists especially james hansen but what do you know was there any part of it in the family landscape that was no, fact- not at all. I I avoided meeting Jim until the play was finished. Uh, mm-hmm. I spoke to Jennifer uh, by phone because I needed her research. It was very very new at the time when I Jim's mm-hmm. book was already published. Jim's work was was in the public domain. His scientific yeah. papers and his also also his. You mean Jennifer that was book. represented by Rebecca Jennifer, in the play? Jennifer Francis. Jennifer Francis, the Arctic ice scientist who has yes. the theory about the melting ice. Uh, uh, contributing to the to the elongation of the jet stream and freezing mm-hmm. our weather, weather patterns so that we get stuck in a polar vortex for a month and a half. California gets stuck in a drought for five months. This is, according to Jennifer, and it's a very plausible theory, although still controversial but very plausible, uh, has to do with the way that the Arctic is warming so much faster than the rest of the world. Um, the and and certainly the rest of the northern hemisphere and when you get all that warm air you get a you get a stagnating jet stream that it moves the weather the jet stream moves the weather around the northern hemisphere when it starts oh. to stagnate and is unable to move because the waves are much much longer because of the melting ice and the warmth in the arctic you get these oh. extreme weather events that we're beginning to see um so anyway i spoke with her <laughs> i yeah. spoke with jennifer by phone about her son not about her personal life. Um, Mm -hmm. I never spoke with Jim, and I have never actually spoken with Michael Mann. I've only read his book. Um, So the family drama of the play is completely invented. Uh, It has Mm -hmm. nothing whatsoever to do with the real-life stories of uh, these scientists. Um, They don't have – I'm a twin. They're not twins. Um, Mm -hmm. So uh, the twin Mm -hmm. part came from me. Uh, the will part, all of all of the the sort of family intrigues and dynamics are invented, but um, all good theater and some of our most powerful theater think of Hamlet, um, uh, an enemy of the people. Think of uh, uh, Oedipus. Think of you know on and on and on. Yes. Cherry Orchard. Yeah. All these plays take place within a family. Yes. The, the, it's the family drama that that allows the social drama and they're they're all plays that have social drama embedded in them but it's the family drama that that carries yes. that uh so yeah so that's yeah. um well it was just not to mix metaphors but since we've been doing that all along it was very well sculpted <laughs> so yeah uh, thank you you know really yeah. very interesting all the way in fact maybe you can even just share with us a little bit about uh, you were thinking, and and the the arrangement. You can almost say the the, the well, architecture wanted, of the relationship. I, I, when when Jim Hansen saw the play, he picked up on the love of nature that's in the play, and I wanted very much to uh, stop the forward narrative and just dwell in nature three or four times throughout the play. So the the prologue is a kind of meditation on life and death 
on the top of this hill, which is the sacred, sort of most beautiful spot on this wilderness estate where they all live. And mm-hmm. then very soon in the first act, you get a star scene where they're suddenly all outside lying down, looking at the stars, and there's beautiful music by our composer, Arthur Rosen, who did a wonderful score for the play. Um mm-hmm. And then uh, uh, there's George's pawn speech, Uncle's pawn speech about the endangered flowers. Um, there's, of course, the other character in the play who never appears except in our imaginations but is very, very alive, is the little frog, Sniffly, who becomes <laughs> Annie's uh, dear companion uh, pet frog. Pet is yeah. the wrong word, but but uh, a frog who is deformed, actually. It has six legs, and she, who she rescues from the pond, which has been polluted by atrazine, and she builds with Uncle a frog pond in the backyard, uh, as many people are doing, because the amphibians' population is, is going extinct, and of course the amphibians sure. are uh, we can't live without them. We can't live without frogs. They're they're an uh, essential part of the uh, chain ecosystem. of life um, yeah. and the ecosystem. So we have to protect them. So many people who are uh, involved in amphibians are building uh, frog ponds to keep these frogs from the pollutants that are that are in the water yeah. supply. Um, yeah. So anyway, Sniffly. Uh, so so I was I was going back and forth between a, a tangled family narrative that gets messier and messier as the play goes on. In other words, the conflict gets more intense and the stakes get higher as the play goes on. And these moments of uh, contemplative nature where the actors and therefore the audience have to stop going forward and just be in nature. And, of course, uh, that's where our best ideas come from. You know, the, the you don't get your best idea when you're sitting at the desk pulling your hair out. You have to take a walk. You have to get away. And when you, have you to walk, go clear you your move, head, as they say. Yes. When go you well, the unconscious head. speaks. The unconscious speaks to us, and we're often too cluttered to hear it. Yes. So yes. when if we have a problem that we're working on, whether it's a personal problem or an, a creative problem or a money problem, whatever the problems are, although I'm not very good at solving money problems personally, but anyway, other problems. If you just leave it and take a walk or do some yoga or go for a swim or whatever you do that that cook a dinner whatever you do that gets you back in touch with the life force your unconscious will manifest and it will provide point, solutions. it may not solve the problem but it'll point you it'll point you in the right direction it will sure, it will take sure, over sure. yeah so so i wanted that experience woven into the place so that we realize which I is uh, I think is absolutely true that without nature there is no imagination. Yes. And yes. and our imaginations yes. were put here to describe nature. And if you look at all the great writing of the past, it's full of nature imagery. And as I like to say these days, writing, painting, music. Imagery, yeah. All if you arts, take the yeah. nature imagery out of Shakespeare, out of Shakespeare, uh. for instance. You're just left with a series of sword fights. It's it's yeah. the nature imagery. Hamlet's meditation on the garden is it a, is it has it gone to weed or is it full of life? It goes through the, through and through the play. It's the nature imagery that tells the emotional story of yes. the 
play and of the characters. And and this is true in books and poetry. So if we lose the imagination, if we lose nature, we lose the imagination. And if we lose the imagination, well, if we lose, we nature, lose that it's which not makes even, us human. Uh, it's not even a conversation because if we lose nature, we're losing ourselves as well. We lose everything, and obviously. Everything we die. Goes, yeah. We die. Goes down. Yeah. Yeah. Let's let everybody yeah. know that uh, you are listening to uh, A Better World with Mitchell J. Rabin. We're on every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Uh, I know many of you listen to us every week, and that's so gratifying for us. And for those of you who are new, we welcome you to the show, you can get our newsletter at www.abetterworld.tv. It's a free newsletter that uh, features the uh, shows we have every week. Uh, Monday nights, uh, 7 p.m. is A Better World Television on uh, Manhattan Community Access Television. We've been on for 21 years, and we have a lot of the shows on video that we do on radio on Tuesday afternoons on Progressive Radio Network, Gary Knoll's uh, wonderful station, uh, online station. Uh, It's a progressive film hour with Mitchell Rabin, where I speak with filmmakers especially, as well as experts in the respective fields that the film uh, we pick uh, go into, largely environmentally oriented, also politically and social issues. We discuss them all, and it's a lot of fun and very interesting and illuminating, and it's the kind of information you do not get in regular commercial conventional media, but you will get on A Better World, so I welcome you all to listen in every week and get on our newsletter and be part of a better world community and family. So today we are spending the hour with the playwright and actor and director, that's not three people, it's two, uh, (laughs) Karen Malpied and George Bartenev, whose piece I just saw last week called Extreme Weather, that's weather with an H, and this is its last week uh, at the Theater for the New City, downtown uh, Manhattan. And so, in reality, uh, not only is this to inspire you all to come and learn and see with your own eyes, experience the power of this particular theater piece, but truly, if there are uh, producers out there who uh, recognize the value of this theater piece from seeing it, uh, please enter dialogue with us regarding uh, the possibility of getting it mounted in Washington, D.C., on the White Thank House you, lawn Mitchell. or Thank you. <laughs> somewhere else where we could have some even greater impact in the world. Because uh, I would like to just tell you both that, uh, you know, I do see a lot of film these days because of that show I do every Tuesday on Progressive Film Hour. And uh, it's great. I love it. I love film as a medium. But there is nothing. And I want to give thanks to Lindsay Kamen right now, who I know through the eco-film world, um, who directed me to uh, meet you both and to see this show. Uh, Because (laughs) 
she made an excellent point that I agree with wholeheartedly, which is that this is not talking heads. And so many of the films on uh, eco issues and climate change and global warming and the like are talking heads. And they're, they're fascinating and they're useful. And it's incredibly factual information that we all need to hear. But there is nothing that, I don't have to say this to you two, but to the audience, nothing like a real live human-to-human portrayal of an issue right under your yeah. nose and your face. And that's what you two and all of your you know, colleagues and actors managed to bring to us in your piece. Well, thank you, thank you. Uh, you know, that's... That's the main uh, reason that we're still doing this, uh, <laughs> yes. uh, because Thank there God. is no experience like it uh, uh, for both sides of the from both sides of, of the lights. Uh, there yeah. is nothing like the live experience, especially if it is a human story uh, that we all identify with, and certainly this issue is. I mean, it's. It's as much part of us as is the world. Yes, exactly. No, it's really true. I mean, it just brought. It's funny because we we've become either celluloid based or now very video based, and photographs everywhere on every single cell phone. And you know, I mean, it's the world is just dazzled by images flashing before our very eyes on screens and monitors of all sizes, shapes, and sorts. And to just come face-to-face in the theater, I mean, it sounds like this is something we've known for so long. You two both embody. I myself have gone from being more involved in theater, uh, you know, in my younger days to much more involved in um, celluloid and video. And uh, so this, for me, is also a really uh, heartening sort of return coming full circle to the brilliance of the work that takes place on a stage. And honestly, I think there have been a number of inter- of uh, film actors, uh, movie actors from Hollywood and elsewhere, who have made that same turnabout. They've decided they wanted to come back to theater. Is It's an interesting... Um, it's an interesting yes. move. We've had, we've had a great experience with this play. Both Lindsay and I work at John Jay College, and John Jay has a new environmental uh, sustainability minor, a very exciting program that we're both involved with. So all our students from the environmental sustainability minor and from my theater and justice classes have been coming to see the play. Now, these are kids, mainly inner-city kids, Many of them, most of them, have never seen a live play before. If they have, maybe they were in a play in high school, maybe they saw The Lion King, but that's it. And what we found out immediately was that these young people understand the live theater experience better than anyone. <laughs> they, yes. they have no they haven't been polluted by seeing a lot of bad theater, you see. And so yes. when you present something that's poetic and strong, they just completely go with it and love it. And it's been so exciting to see these kids because this is the kind of audience that everybody says they want 
which is young people in in the theater, young people exactly. not privileged. The the students at John Jay have worked hard to get there, and they usually have two jobs, and they're wor- still working hard to stay there. Um, they're 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 just very aware, uh, wonderful students, and they love this play, and it's been great to watch them and listen to them hooting and laughing and cheering and you know. Uh, you to know, play on. I'm glad you're bringing this up, Karen. And may I ask? You both, I, I was uh, really um, scratching my head at one moment because I was the only one laughing at uh-huh. a scene yeah. that yeah. would not have <laughs> otherwise been funny. And I was hoping that nobody was going to throw tomatoes at me. The play is a <laughs> lot funnier. It's a lot funnier than the students actually get it and you got it and some of the brighter okay. audience. The, the problem with a new play is that no yes. one knows how to respond because no one knows what it is. And, yes. a, and a play that seems to be so serious, uh, not only yes. is it about climate change, but it, it's about sexual right. transgression, it's about uh, you know yes. money and power, and it, but it's actually full of humor. And, uh, it's it, full it both, of humor. It, yeah, yes. it's, it's, it is both funny and serious at the same time. And, right, and which I think is excellent the play, theater. It, you know. Yeah, if we get to run longer uh, yeah. and more people get to see it, people will feel better about laughing. Um, <laughs> yeah. But again, the students had no problem. They they got the jokes immediately. Um, and they got the sexual intrigue immediately, and they were yes. with it from the, you know, from the very get-go. Uh, from yeah, the get-go, but, that's yes, great. You're allowed to well, laugh. So please come so and see I, the play, I, and please I, laugh. I don't know if you knew that it was me, but during the, um, and I don't want to say too much to everybody who might be coming, but it's it's okay, don't, not to worry. Don't worry, Uh, don't worry. During Sniffly, the six-legged frog's uh, funeral, that was so hilarious. You guys did such a job. I mean, the, uh, Anne, her name is? I'm Annie. Losing track. Annie. Annie's, what her in, she was so intent on giving him the highest honored funeral, you know, that, that could ever, ever, it was like a king of the forest or a king of a nation yes. passing, you know, it was with the greatest sobriety and somberness. Yes. And and well, um, any and of any course, parent who has ever ever had a child who ha- who had a beloved pet who dies. I mean, this is yes. this is a crisis, right? And and the love of the love of children for animals is really one of the great great experiences. Close to I had, we, have, we have two cocker spaniels, and they I was walking them down the street the other day, and they saw a man who we didn't know. And they went running up to him and started jumping on him and wagging their tails. And he began to pet them and fuss over them. And I said to him, are you a long-lost friend? And he looked up at me with tears in his eyes. This was a middle, middle-aged man. He, he was crying. He said, I had a spaniel. I had, to, I had to put her down at the age of 13. I can never get another dog. And I said, oh, I've been through that. I had to put my previous spaniel down at the age of 13. I got these two. But the dogs knew that this man had loved a a dog like them. And they just (laughs) ran to him. And they just responded, exactly. Yeah, and he responded with such love. 
that that's I the bond my... between Sniffly and Annie, and it's a bond oh, that yeah. many of us have experienced. The the beloved animal who gets us, who understands us better than anyone, you know. Exactly. And then animals die; they die soon. You know, they they dogs, they do. frogs have very short lives. Much shorter so cycles than up, us. Yeah, yeah. So we end well, up mourning. during that scene. I was watching the the nuances between the actors on stage and oh you know uncle you were brilliant <laughs> you know and you took you were absolutely right in sync with Annie and her entire yeah. emotional sentiment and you of yes. course as a, an older gentleman with his you know yeah. great niece or whatever you know yes what <laughs> Well, well, you know, I think that her, her lyric, uh, the song that she sings, is so yes. lovely, and yes. uh, it. I mean, you could really believe that uh, because of her deep love for this uh, creature, she she's inspired to write these lyrics, and they're exactly. very beautiful and very simple, but very beautiful. That's right. Yeah. But that little squeaky, you know, a little bit of a squeak in her voice and her singing mm-hmm. voice, which started out yeah. a little shaky and it got a little bit more yeah. beautiful as it went on. And then, yeah, and then yeah. add to all of this incredible drama right there. We have Frank weighing in, um, doing his <laughs> best to be, you know, united with his daughter in her sentiment. And yeah. then... His, you know, girlfriend Rebecca, both the hardcore scientists. Are you talking? No, John is John is the John is the father of Annie, not Frank. Yeah. Frank. Oh, is I'm the, sorry. Frank is I'm the sorry. Uncle. Exactly. Frank My is mistake. The uncle. My mistake. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, John, um, doing what he can, and just their faces so well portrayed. Their mixed mm-hmm. emotion. They they love their daughter of course they love that she loves the frog <laughs> sniffly and they 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 totally understand but they're not going to it's not like the end of their lives that's well sniffly they have a gone. different drama going on you know because right. they are being torn apart by the machinations of gene and frank so they're Exactly. They they're both in they're they're in a very upset adult world and they have to kind of bring themselves to this funeral for Annie's sake. Exactly. You know. but, well you've also yeah. got the interplay of what I keep seeing throughout the piece of the macro world of climate and the larger weather patterns and the ice mm-hmm. melting um yes. and the issues that brings forth on political economic levels to the so-called adult world and then the micro level of annie and uncle involved with wildflowers and involved in the frog pond and you know the the real habitat issues all of which are always constantly interfacing with each other and i think that's well, part know, of the brilliance of the whole Mitchell, theater piece because people you know, people always say, what can I do about climate change? It's bigger than I am, so so what? But actually, yes. it matters how we live. It, it's not enough. Yes, we does. need public policy in the public interest, but it also matters how we live. So the people who plant plants, the people who plant gardens, the people who save the frogs, the people who take short showers, <laughs> you know, everything we yeah. do, the people who stop using plastic bags. I mean, there's so many things we can do in our daily life that, that actually have an effect. Turn down the heat, turn off the air conditioning, turn off the That's lights. Right. 
um, and on and on. Yep. And the more that you do those things, the more you yep. become aware of the web of life and your place in the web of life. That's and actually right. the richer, it's not about denying yourself something. It's about becoming more fulfilled and more connected. And your life actually becomes richer because you're part of something larger than yourself for a change, that's right? right? That's and right. and that's exactly. that's what we all that's the consciousness change we all have to work, and that is something that happens in the theater because in the theater you're breathing together, and the audience is as important as the actors. The actors get better. The more you laugh, <laughs> the more you get it. Yeah. Somebody like you in the audience, you lift yeah. the whole performance way up. And and it oh, becomes that, a, a collaborative experience. Thank you, Karen. Right? Thank you. I felt like such a lone wolf or a salmon <laughs> swimming upstream. I was the only person laughing during the funeral scene of Sniffly. Uh, uh, <laughs> and I thought, you know, I got an elbow in my side. Like, what's so funny? I, well, look well, at what's so funny. During, <laughs> a lot of people cry during the funeral scene, too. Yeah, <laughs> right. Well, I, I could cry a little um, bit, too. And you know? especially if you well, lost someone in in the recent you know in your recent life whether it's an animal or a, or, yes. a, or a human exactly it seems, will bring up those emotions be, that seems exactly. to be very moving yeah exactly yeah. i'd like to yeah. circle back to something that uh we had spoken of the other night after the piece uh when we were contemplating doing this uh radio interview and show uh and karen earlier you did make a very strong point about bringing us into contact with nature through the theater piece. And that did happen very much at uh, several intervals. And as at the beginning, when they are at the top of the mountain and they're remarking mm-hmm. about the beauty and the sky and you've got the, the uh, different kinds of views, natural images behind, uh, mm-hmm. behind the stage yeah. that we can see. And then... Uh, one of the most touching, there were so many touching moments for me, really, but there was one, the thing that just kind of cracked me open was uh, Uncle's kind of soliloquy in looking back at his own life and the way he was raised in a very naturalist type of setting and uh, what happened to that relationship with nature, the way sort of life began to decay it a little bit. But the main emphasis was that magnificent relationship of love and respect and play with nature like it was an older brother and a younger sister at the same time. And, George, you said that you would be willing to share that, uh, at least a part of that with us and with our audience today. Yeah, uh, sure. I've never done it on a, on a phone. But I've never phoned it in. You know, I'm, I'm against. I'm against well, I'm phoning. even more honored. But once, once when we were rehearsing a play in the middle of Hurricane Irene, and one of our actresses could not arrive for rehearsal because she lived out of town, uh, we yes. did put her on speakerphone, and we rehearsed with her on speakerphone. So we have experience with phoning it. Oh, excellent. I feel better already. This yeah. is called the, ex- the uh, intelligent use of technology. <laughs> so if you would share with, that, with our audience just to give them a, a little bit of a, a sense of the power of some of the play. 
you know, look, I'm not asking you both to, like, um, play yeah. out everything that happened between John and Rebecca. So <laughs> you're happy. No. You should be happy. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, I think I think. Uh, want to set the, the context? What? Do you want to set context? the context? The context. It, the it, context. It, is yes. that what you mean? It, it's a speech. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the context is this. Uh, we're building the frog pond, and I select all these uh, really uh, um, special flowers that are rare and also aromatic, uh, that have their own perfume. Uh, and uh, so I list all of those uh, flowers for her. Um, and then I come to the last flower, and I say, but most miraculous of all is this scruffy little wildflower, Tory's Mountain Mint, endangered the worldwide, imperiled yet amazement on my face. Here it is. To see, to sniff. Oh, sometimes I do despair. Why not? No, not with you, my dear. Not in front of you, I tell myself. Forgive me, child. Care of this land was passed to me by your grandfather, a noble soul. Like your papa and demeanor, uncle, he said. They called me uncle even then, though I had no one. I was sublimely unattached, had wandered by and struck by the beauty of the view, stopped to linger here. You shall be the steward of my land as far as the eye can see. We shall hold in perpetuity. Should any of my progeny wish to dwell in this domain, you, Uncle, will see the land comes to no harm. No one shall disrupt the mountain top, the mountain stream or bubbling brook. Your grandfather spoke like that in those days. Nature intervened in all our words. We painted with our tongues. We looked and spoke and kept the land forever in our heads. We, was, we walked with beauty inside and out. And now we rescue Sniffly and his like from the mountain pond, which somehow has become contaminated with runoff from a source outside my watch, invisible to my eye. And we bend down and marvel at a bit of Tory's mountain mint, nearly all alone in all the world. We have our miracles still, small though they are. Once we walked the land and we were minuscule. Old growth forest above our heads, a cacophony of creatures. We sensed our place in the grand design to marvel at the large and small, the sky, the mountain, the honeybee, the plant beneath our feet to step lightly, not to leave a mark where we had walked. The grasses would rebound, the forest would remain untouched. We would harvest and replace. We would... Exit as we'd come, gently 
unremarked upon. That's it. That is it. That's that the description. It. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank and you. you know, this was based on a um, article uh, that appeared in the New York Times about the disappearance of Tories Mountain Mint from Staten Island, mm. uh, where they discovered uh, a patch of it that was endangered by a construction uh, of a new uh, shopping center or something. And uh, so the the person who wrote this beautiful article mentioned a lot of these flowers that uh, that Karen then took that article and made it into that speech. I see. Yes. So, yes. That yeah, was the botanist that was part of the Parks Department who spoke yes. at the end of the piece. That's right. That's right. Yes. Yes. Muriel uh, Alizione. Yes. Alizione. Yes. yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, Which yeah. was a beautiful touch as well. But Thank you for that, George. I, it's so yeah. rich. And well, well, you know what's such really wonderful. What, what's a wonderful thing? I, I, you haven't, maybe we haven't said enough about it yet. But I just want to mention yeah. that what Please. makes this also a wonderful uh, uh, evening for people is that they get to listen to such a person, an expert who's out there in the field, doing the kind of work that we want to hear about and suggesting things that are an inspiration to to the audience to make them feel, well, gee, I could do something, actually. I could actually do something, you know. And yes. and so it, it makes the evening really satisfying, you know. Yes, you indeed. Know. And you did say that uh, Jim Hansa did come to see the piece. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yes, he, he was there opening night, yeah. He, Which was Hansen only all loved, of four loved, weeks ago. Loved, loved, Three loved the play. He he was over the top with. He said uh, he he actually said he thinks most of the documentaries are very boring, uh, but that this play could reach a large audience because of its yeah. emotional life and also because he he also responded to the love of nature. He's a great lover of nature, and yeah. uh, he. Um, Obviously, and he said, you know, that that was so important and and so clear in the play. Uh, yeah, so he he's been a great friend of the project. He he came to an early reading, which he liked, but he really loved the production because it was all you know realized there. And yeah. he's been yeah no, he's been a great uh, great friend of the of the project. Um, yeah, as has Jennifer. Wonderful. Jennifer Francis came to an early reading and then came back to see the play and spoke and also loved it. Uh, so we're yeah we're we're fortunate in our friends. Yes. 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 Well, I'm really all we need really is a friend. All we it. need is a friend with a lot of money who wants to be a theater producer, uh, yes. or several friends like that, and and uh, that's a lot of fun too. <laughs> so. That's for sure. It's a, in this case would be a tremendous gift to humanity because where we are heading is. Uh, not pretty. Uh, you know, I deal with a lot of people a lot of the time, and we speak about either the um, the onset of the sixth epoch, which would have human beings um, as a unified field 
engaging all of the level of levels of their intelligence up through yeah. the prefrontal cortex and into the higher yeah. levels of the heart uh, where yeah. we can be yeah. most yeah. humane or we are heading toward the sixth extinction that has been yeah. spelled out to yeah. us in some mm-hmm. detail as well you know yeah, and right. we're we're yeah. we're in the crossroads and, right and now we're we're, in, we're actually in charge i mean we haven't been you in bet. charge uh, of the fate of the Earth. Uh, the nuclear age brought us into this moment where we were suddenly in charge of not only ourselves but the entire Earth. And and so it's a, both a, a it's an incredible opportunity to ascend, <laughs> to yes, deepen and ascend, uh, to become right. aware and 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 also to become happier and live longer and and take better care of ourselves and our friends and our lovers and loved ones and exactly and, and at the same time as you say uh there's a horrible other if we don't wake up if we don't grow up if we don't open up uh there's a business as usual won't do won't do not at um, all not at all yeah. this is the kind of thing we talk about on a better world uh radio and yeah. tv routinely well, not you. because i no. want to i'd rather be talking no. about art and music and films you and have death. To. You but have to. this yeah. is this is able you have both given me an opportunity to speak about such things but uh with an artistic uh punch so to speak and uh for which yeah. i'm grateful and i really yeah, mean well, you know, that it's um, very upsetting that the theater has not we had so much trouble raising the money to do this play, even in really? the small production. And, and um, yeah. the design is beautiful. We work with wonderful designers, wonderful actors. The acting is extraordinary. Um, and yet we couldn't get the theater community itself to, to wake up to the – they're frightened. And uh, they're frightened because their boards of directors are stocked with people heavily invested in fossil fuels. And the, the oh. money thing gets in the way. And so yesterday, I was approached after the after the performance by uh, someone who said, "I will give you money to write a play about the scientists who deny climate change." He said to, he actually said to oh, write the real no. story. I want you to write ah. about Richard Linsden. And Richard Linsden oh. is one of the great deniers. He's now at the Heritage Foundation. He's been has oh, a right wing think yes. tank being funded by fossil fuel interests. And this sure. guy was going to offer give me money, <laughs> which I need actually, to yes. write this play. He was sent there, obviously. I mean, they, yes. they're everywhere. The the fossil fuel interests and the fossil fuel and the climate deniers are everywhere, and they're sabotaging every good effort that is yes. to to you know, it is made. That's very interesting. That's actually, you know, that's actually a good sign that you have reached some people somewhere <laughs> deep enough that the you know the antagonists would come forward. You know, yes, but where are the that, protagonists who want to come forward and help us move this play exactly. forward? You know, the antagonists the are always that. there, and they have big bucks. They have unlimited checkbooks, and, you know, no shame, really no shame. They will lie right, exactly. on television, well, you, you know, we didn't touch upon that, and we're, we're beginning to run out of time here, but just to say that uh, that is a whole other theme uh, beyond the actual climate crisis itself. Uh, you know where we're heading off how a cliff. These, how these but, scientists who who want to tell the truth are being censored, attacked, 
uh, threatened, followed. They get white powder in their mailbox. They get crank calls. They get fired. This is all in the play, and it's all happened, and it's still happening. And, and all then these the other layer the of the the other layer of his twin sister and her husband, uh, who are uh, basically uh, advocates of and consultants to the um, the fossil fuel industry. So that yes. adds another wrinkle slash layer into the yes. whole complexity of the theater piece and the relationships that, you know, just make it, you know, blows the top off of it, no pun intended. Yes, and there's also in the play, there are several solutions that are put forward. One is Uncle's commitment to renewable energy, renewable energy That's right, sources. The and the other farm. is John's, John's commitment bill. to putting a carbon tax, a tax on carbon, so exactly. that the fossil fuel industry finally pays the true cost of the health damages, of the environmental damages that burning fossil fuel does, if there were a tax on carbon, which is a public policy initiative, then renewables would come within reach and people could just switch over. And we'd have solved the problem uh, in a very swift and, and effective way. So well, I like the sound of that. <laughs> as well. You know? The true yeah. cost is a, a highly debatable um, phrase because when you are talking about the extinction of, of a series of species that we yeah. have about yeah. 40% of species happened. now, yeah. Yeah, what, what dollar started. amount, what yeah. dollar value can you put on the destruction of 30 to 40% of nature as we knew it growing up. You're absolutely right, but the fossil fuel industry doesn't pay any. They get enormous tax breaks. And this is why people, you know, even in Europe, gasoline has cost $12 a gallon for years. When you say that to Americans, they gasp, you know. That's right. If you charge $12 a gallon for gas, you have a better railway system right away. Right away, That's better right. public That's transportation right. because people That's need it and they demand but the, it. But there's another, and, you know, there's so there, a whole other aspect here, and we're not going to go into it at depth right now toward the end of the show. But fossil fuel is only one. In fact, it is not the primary source of CO2. We discuss this on the show all the time. But deforestation is another. That is actually much more serious an issue. Of deforestation of both the Amazon and the Congo and other yes, areas but, in the world. The and also is, is we have being... the issue of the disappearance of plankton and the effect yes. of plastics on plankton, which is the beginning yes. of a food chain. And plankton yes. actually offers us 50% of our oxygen. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. George. Yeah. Well, they, everything has an effect. Uh, that's, the, uh, I think, the point. Uh, uh, between this discussion is that everything has a f- an effect uh, and that is why a whole change in practice and behavior is so important exactly and, you know necessary. I, I think and so necessary I mean really I I, I don't know how people you know miss it or or yeah. maybe don't want to see it you know because it's too Correct. it's too much to it's too devastating 
you know, people never uh, embrace change, you know, yeah. unless unless they can really feel how good it would be. Uh, That's right. So, so that we need to make the change more attractive, uh, you know. Um, yes, exactly. And, and, uh, yeah, exactly. It's not that, other, of course, yeah. fossil fuels, as you say, it's what we're dealing with, of course, is a confluence of yes. lifestyle habits, you know, yes. from the micro in the family to, you know, mm -hmm. the cars and the trucks and the highway system and the macro economics that cause wars because wars are fought for oil security, which is no security at all, you know, and yeah. on, on the drama unfolds and unravels. Yeah. Well, you know, there used to be, um, yes, uh, there's, a book called, there's a book called The Death of Nature by Carolyn Merchant, in which she speaks about uh, the moment when uh, uh, people decided <laughs> that, they, that they were alive, but the rest of nature is dead. Um, and, yes. and it was, you know, relatively recently that it was the dawn of the modern age um, yeah. that science separated uh, humans away off from nature and began to treat nature as a thing, as a exactly. as a utilitarian object. Well, it's the, you know, and, it's the Cartesian model. Yes, you know. exactly, yeah. exactly right. Yes. Mm. Yeah. yeah. You're absolutely right. Well, listen, I want to just thank you both profoundly for your beautiful work and it's an amazing gift that you have given to uh, our New York community and uh, more than that and I really would love to see this play you know be carried on carried forward so yes. I've oh, yes. already begun so to whisper in from, the ears of <laughs> from your lips yes. to yes, yes indeed <laughs> let's hear it yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm I'm doing what I can to direct people yeah. for this last week and hopefully some people that uh, yeah. wouldn't want you to do a play on the climate deniers. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. So welcome, George Thank you so much. We really appreciate your support so yeah. much. Absolutely. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks so much for joining me today. And uh, we will be in touch quite soon. Great. 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 Okay. Bye bye now. Bye bye. How rich, how rich a dialogue or trilogue, if you will, with uh, Karen Malpied, the playwright, and George Bartenyov, her husband, who plays uncle in the film. In the film, oh my God, in the theater piece. I'm so accustomed to saying theater, uh, saying film. It's uh, because of what I do every single week. And honestly, this is a refreshing change uh, as much as I love film there's nothing quite like being right there face to face with the issues and uh, it's living it's breathing it's blood is pumping it's just there's just nothing that replaces the really quality theater experience and on subjects that are so close to home of nature, of our relationship with each other, about love, about uh, children and how we take care of them and how we take care of the natural world and how the natural world takes care of us. And on and on, this, this play is really remarkable. And I really urge you all who are in the overall New York area, tri-state area, to um, come into New York or go from uptown to downtown 
and uh, see this play. It's uh, well worth it. Extreme Weather at Theater for the New City. It is on our website, and uh, you can always listen to this uh, and forward this to your friends. And I've got to just say, uh, any producer who may be listening, uh, we uh, really want to uh, engage you in dialogue to get this into a larger venue. I myself was, as I mentioned at the beginning of this uh, show, uh, very involved in theater many, many moons ago and from, you know, uh, pieces at Bard with uh, dear friends like David Schechter at the time and uh, studying with Liz Suedos who did some things on Broadway as well. And it was a very rich time in my own personal uh, creative development, being both co-director, dramaturg, some acting, some directing, uh, some stage managing, some producing, a little of everything. And we ended up putting a play we did um, based on Isaac Besheva Singer, the Nobel Prize winner, uh, one of his short stories, Gimple the Fool, we brought that to theater, and uh, Isaac himself joined us for an evening that he always wanted to do with us, where we did the play, and then he spoke to the audience, and we did that out at First Congregational Church out in uh, Montclair, New Jersey, back in, my word, 1983, was it? 82, 83, right in there, and it was a great Great evening, written up in the New York Times, etc. And um, we we got very very friendly with Isaac Besheva Singer back then, and he did teach at Bard. That's where we first met him. And uh, I, I just appreciate the whole the whole domain of theater and experimental theater and theater that makes a difference. That's really what it is. And I feel that uh, this play that Karen Malpede wrote and George was uh, one of the lead actors in really, really teaches us so much about where we are at this point in time relative to uh, what we do in nature, how we are interacting with her and with each other in respect to her. So uh, very rich and it really deserves to continue on and, and have a, a traveling group across the country and more. Uh, really would love to see that. So anyone who can participate in that, please uh, contact me or them. And uh, if it's me, I will introduce the parties accordingly. So with that said, I want to also remind you that an event that A Better World is hosting on Thursday evening at 6.30 at the Turnasol Wellness Center. It's with Dr. Michael Cotton on something called Higher Brain Living. And so much of my interest in this phenomenon of higher brain living has to do with the awakening of the prefrontal cortex, the deepening of our relationship with it, uh, which, by the way, interesting, neurophysiologically reaches down into our heart center. So between our higher brain and our higher heart, we can really shape 
a new world, a world where we don't have to have these kinds of discussions of money over principle or politics over life. It just doesn't even wash. It doesn't obtain. We can really move on to living in a world that enjoys money, no problem, but not at the expense of life itself or nature herself. That is pathology. And we really have to call it for what it is. We have to get back to, you know, humane values that just make sense. And uh, no longer is money and our money and power gods, but our own thriving humanity is what we're looking for. And what we're doing on Thursday evening, it's a free demonstration. If you go to our website, www.abetterworld.tv, under the uh, carousel at the top, just go down a little bit, Dr. Michael Cotton, Higher Brain Living, and click through. Uh, then to register ahead of time. So it's free, otherwise it's expensive. So do come. And uh, seating is somewhat limited, so it's really important that you, uh, you know, kind of uh, register as early as possible at this late point. Uh, you're, uh, we'll, you'll really be enriched by this process that uh, has some effect very similar to long-term meditative practices, yet seems to be done uh, in a much more expeditious way. So there's that. And then I want to remind you all as well of on November 8th, the Voices of Hope, um, which is an, a day-long seminar or, or summit type of conference that will... Uh, be really enriching our thinking these days when we are feeling so beleaguered by so much. Helena Norberg-Hodge from England will be uh, orchestrating this really lovely day at the Great Hall of Cooper Union. Uh, And it will be inspiring to all. I'll have Helena on Uh, my radio show at Progressive Radio Network on Tuesday, uh, October 28th, coming up relatively soon next Tuesday. This Tuesday, uh, well, by the time this gets aired, it will be too late for that announcement, but uh, since we're pre-recording today. Uh, But next Tuesday, you will be able to hear Helena, who uh, made the film... The Economics of Happiness, and it's a good long look at the nation of Ladakh in the Himalayas, which went from being indigenously happy like Bhutan, where unemployment didn't exist because everybody had a place in society doing what they needed to do relative to their family and the needs of all of their community, to one that becomes rather invaded by Western influences, values, and uh, materialistic capitalist uh, ideals, if you will, and the disintegration of this beautiful, otherwise harmonious harmonious society. And out of that uh, comes this call 
a cry in the wilderness of voices for hope. So you can get information about that and sign up for the day at this website, abetterworld.tv as well. On that note, I want to just uh, sign off and thank you all for uh, joining me and us today, Karen Malpede and George Bartenev, uh, both of whom are dedicated in the theater world, uh, have been leading proponents of experimental theater for literally decades, George being one of the co-founders of Theater for the New City, right here on First Avenue between 9th and 10th Streets, and uh, Karen, who has written some 17 plays that uh, are just of an ilk that really are, you know, inspiring and world-changing at the same time. So with that, I want to just thank you all. Also remember that we accept donations and are always grateful for those who are able to make any size donation anytime. Some of you do so monthly, even with small amounts. Believe me, every amount helps us stay on the air and do the public service that we do. So on that note, thank you again, and I look forward to seeing you all 